Okay, in this class, we're going to address dressing selection, which is a critical element of topical therapy and something you will be asked to do every single day in clinical practice and for every patient for whom you receive a wound consult. So a lot of times, decision-making about dressings is overwhelming for the new wound clinician because there are so many dressings out there and it's like, how do I know which one's best for this patient? I don't know where to start. So what we're going to do is we're going to outline a decision-making pathway for developing an appropriate plan for topical therapy. We're going to discuss the indications for filler and cover dressings and for hydrating and absorbing dressings. And we're gonna identify at least two dressing options for each of the following. A wound with depth or tunneling and a large amount of exudate a wound with depth or tunneling and minimal or no exudate, a shallow wound with large volume of exudate, and a shallow wound with minimal or no exudate. So we're gonna to try to take all of those dressings and put them into some major categories and give you the key principles and decision-making guidelines that will make you successful in recommendations related to dressing selection and topical therapy. So your learning activities, the video, we're gonna cover a lot in the video. Chapter eight in your core curriculum gives you a lot of very helpful additional um, information and the learning exercises will help you apply what we're talking about to clinical practice. So let's talk about a decision-making pathway for topical therapy. I remember when I first got into wound care and I would walk into a room, I'd look at a wound, and then I was kind of waiting for inspiration, which by the way, rarely um, arrived. And I needed something like this. I needed something that would let me just go down a list and make appropriate decisions and allow me to know that I wasn't missing anything. So here's what you wanna think about when you're putting together a plan for wound care. The first thing you always want to do is you want to actively screen for any infectious complications and make sure that you're taking the appropriate action for any wound that is complicated by some level of infection. So we're going to go back a little bit to what we talked about in the last class. The first thing you want to think about is are there any indicators for osteomyelitis, or is this wound high risk for osteomyelitis? Remember, any foot wound is high risk because there's 26 bones in each foot. Trunk wounds with tunneling are high risk. Where is that tunnel going? And wounds with visible or palpable bone. So if you are concerned about osteo, if you feel like this wound may very well be complicated by osteo, you're gonna manage that with referrals. You're going to consult either orthopedics or infectious disease to do further workup. The next thing you're gonna look for is any evidence of invasive infection. Is there any evidence that you have soft tissue infection or cellulitis? So do you see peri wound, erythema, induration, heat, pain? If so, you want to get an order for systemic antibiotics. If you're advanced practice, you can write the order. If you're specialty practice, you collaborate with the prescribing um, physician. 
And definitely, if there's any viable tissue in the wound bed, you want to get a culture so that your antibiotic therapy is culture-driven. The third thing you screen, screen for, no, let's say there's no evidence of osteo, <clears throat> no evidence of cellulitis. Is there any evidence of critical colonization? So what would tell you there's critical colonization? Sudden deterioration, an unexplained plateau, poor quality granulation tissue, recurrent formation of a film on the surface of the wound. In this case, you treat locally. The infection is limited to the surface of the wounds. You're gonna do aggressive cleansing, disrupt any biofilm, and you're gonna to use topical antimicrobials. Okay, so priority number one, actively screen for any level of infection, take appropriate action. Level two, look at the peri wound. We always provide protection of the peri wound because it's very high risk for peristomal, sorry, peri wound moisture associated skin damage. You also wanna to look to see, is there anything else going on in the peri wound that needs to be addressed? Do you have patchy areas of skin loss? Okay, you wanna treat those patchy areas of skin loss very frequently with that crusting technique. Do you see evidence of a fungal infection? then you're gonna crust with an antifungal or use an antifungal moisture barrier. So we always protect the peri wound, either with the liquid skin barrier or with a moisture barrier ointment. And if there are specific problems involving the peri wound, like patchy areas of denudation or a yeast infection, we treat appropriately. We then assess the wound edges. So you see how you're coming outside in. Look at the wound edges, are they open or are they closed? If they're closed and the wound is granulating and close to the surface, you have to intervene, either with silver nitrate or with a sharp curette. If you're not cleared or covered to use a sharp curette, you have to see who else on your team is. If the wound edges are closed, but the wound is four centimeters deep or the wound is still filled with, green, with necrotic tissue, then you don't intervene yet because the wound's not ready for resurfacing. So you look at your wound edges, you determine if they're going to be a problem, then you determine is it a priority at present. Then you look at the wound bed. Is there significant necrotic tissue in the wound bed? If yes, you have to answer two questions. Should I debride? And remember, you should debride if your goal is healing. You should debride if the wound is at least partially open, and you should debride if the wound is clinically infected. Then you have to decide whether you should use instrumental debridement, non-instrumental debridement, and which form of non-instrumental. But if there's minimal or no necrotic tissue, you are gonna base your decision on the volume of exudate and the depth and contours of the wound. <clears throat> so let's back up just a minute and talk about what it is that dressings do in relation to wound healing. This is gonna help you focus on what you're looking for in your dressing. Most dressings on the market today provide passive support for wound healing, meaning they don't heal the wound, they don't make collagen, they don't stimulate fibroblast activity. They don't stimulate keratinocyte activity. 
But what they do is they create a local environment that promotes healing. So they wick fluid from tunneled or undermined areas. They absorb exudate. They maintain a moist wound surface. Some of them provide a waterproof bacterial barrier, which can be very important if you have a trunk wound and an incontinent patient. Most contribute to insulation, so they help to keep the wound bed warm, which promotes cell activity. They should provide atraumatic removal so that there's no trauma to the wound bed at dressing change. And then some dressings also provide antimicrobial effects. Now you can take all the dressings on the market and there's lots and lots of dressings and you can divide them into major categories. The first way you can divide dressings is in terms of whether they go in direct contact with the wound surface or they're intended to be the outer secondary cover dressing. If you have a tunneled area, you're going to need a wick that will tuck into the tunneled area and wick fluid out of the tunneled area and keep the tunnel open. If you have wounds with depth or contours, you will need both a filler or a primary dressing and a cover or secondary dressing. So one dressing will go into the wound, second dressing will go over the wound. If you have a surface wound with no depth, no tunneling, you just need a cover dressing. So you're gonna select the primary dressing, the one that's in contact with the wound based on contours and exudate. You're gonna select the outer cover based on volume of exudate and the need for a bacterial barrier. The other way you can divide dressings is by their action in terms of exudate management. So some dressings, many dressings, are absorptive. They're intended to absorb exudate, pull exudate away from the surface of the wound, prevent pooling of exudate within the wound. But what if you have a dry wound? Well, you wouldn't need an absorbing dressing. You would need a hydrating dressing. So we actually, in terms of exudate management, we divide dressings into three categories. Those are absorptive, those that maintain existing levels of moisture, and those that add moisture, those that are hydrating. So obviously, if I have a wet wound, if I go and I take off the old dressing and it's saturated, if I, the wound looks wet, if there's any pooled drainage in the wound bed, I need an absorptive dressing. And commonly used absorptive dressings, the most common, the ones you need to understand, are alginate dressings, also known as seaweed dressings, hydrofiber dressings, polymers and foams. If you have a wound that has just a little bit of exudate, so you take off the dressing, there might be just a little bit of drainage on the dressing, the wound surface itself is moist, but there's no pooled exudate, then what you're trying to do is use a dressing that maintains that environment. You want to absorb any excess exudate, but you want to keep the surface itself moist. Now, one characteristic that you'll frequently hear discussed by manufacturers is moisture vapor transmission rate. 
and it refers to how porous the dressing is and whether or not the fluid component of exudate passes through the dressing for absorption in, or for evaporation into the environment. If your dressing has a high moisture vapor transmission rate, it means it's very permeable to moisture vapor. So moisture moves through the dressing and is evaporated. If your dressing has a low moisture vapor transmission rate, it means that that fluid is trapped next to the wound bed and helps to maintain a moist surface. So hydrocolloids, transparent adhesive dressings have relatively low moisture vapor transmission rates. Hydrocolloids essentially have no moisture vapor transmission. So when you put on a hydrocolloid dressing like Duoderm or Comfil or a comparable dressing, what it's going to do is it's going to trap any moisture within the wound. It's going to hold it within the wound and maintain a moist wound surface. But it's not going to do a good job with a lot of exudates. So you would use a hydrocolloid on a wound with minimal exudate where you wanted to maintain a moist surface. What about Tegaderm or Opsite? Those are transparent adhesive dressings. They also retain moisture within the wound bed. So transparent adhesive dressings vary in the moisture vapor transmission rate. Some of them retain almost all fluid within the wound bed and others allow some evaporative loss. So you have to know what you've got and also what are you trying to accomplish? Are you trying to trap moisture? Do you want a balance of allowing pass-through for evaporation and retaining some at the wound surface? Contact layer dressings, things like Vaseline gauze, Xeroform gauze, we'll talk more about those. They usually have moderate levels of moisture vapor transfer, so they do allow water components to pass through for evaporation and they typically retain some moisture at the wound surface. However, important to realize that your petrolatum-based contact layer dressings like Vaseline gauze and like Adaptic and like Xeroform, they will dry out. So they're not going to maintain a moist wound surface on a prolonged basis. They will maintain a moist wound surface for one to two days typically. What if you have a wound and you look at it and it's dry? is covered with dry eschar, or you take off the dressing, there's absolutely no exudate on the dressing, the surface itself looks dry and crusty, then you're going to need to add moisture to that wound surface. You're gonna need a hydrating dressing. So I once went to a lecture and it was very high level, lots of scientific terms. But at the end of it, the scientist who provided the lecture said, okay, never mind all that. Here's what it comes down to. If the wound is wet, you need something to manage the drainage because you just want to keep the surface itself barely moist. So if it's wet, absorb. If it's dry, hydrate. And if it's just minimally moist, kind of try to keep it there. And that's what this slide is saying. Okay, so now let's start getting down to your guidelines. Um, you're gonna assess your wound 
We've talked about wound assessment in detail, but when, when you look at dressing selection, the most critical parameters are depth, contours, and volume of exudate. So you pull these out to guide you in decision-making. Once you look at depth, contours, and volume of exudate, you can put the wound into one of four categories. You should consider this wound in your head to be deep and wet if it's more than 0.25 centimeters deep, or there are tunnels or undermined areas, and there's a moderate to a large amount of exudate. So deep, wet wounds across the board are gonna require a filler dressing and a cover dressing, and those dressings should be absorptive. A deep and dry wound is a wound that's less than zero or greater than 0.25 centimeters in depth, or there are tunnels or undermined areas, but there's very little exudate. So depth or tunnels, but practically no drainage. Across the board, these wounds will also require both fillers and covers, but they need to be hydrated. Shallow and wet, less than 0.25 centimeters in depth, no tunnels, no undermined areas, but a lot of drainage. Shallow and dry, less than 0.25 centimeters, no tunnels, no undermined areas, and very little exudate. So shallow wounds just need cover dressings in most cases. If they're wet, you want an absorptive cover dressing. If it's dry, you want a hydrating cover dressing. So now we're going to go through each category and we're going to look at some dressing options, dressing combinations. We're going to look at what are our goals, what do we need, and what are some options. But before we get into this, I want you to be very clear that at this point in time, we have no data that says, oh, this dressing is better than this dressing. None. We have very good evidence when it comes to the principles of moist wound healing. We know it's critically important to absorb exudate to avoid pooled exudate. We know it's equally important to keep the wound surface moist. We know we've got to pull fluid out of tunnels. We need, we need to protect the healing wound from trauma and from contamination. But is there anything that says an alginate's better than a hydrofiber, or this foam is better than that foam, or a hydrocolloid is inherently better than a transparent adhesive dressing? No. So you need to get rid of the perspective or the feeling that, oh, there's one dressing you should pick, and if you just knew which one it was, you'd have good outcomes. And you want to stay very principle based. You all come from different agencies, you all have different formularies, but you can all manage the same wounds with the same results. You follow the principles. Okay, so we're going to start with your deep wet wounds. So these are wounds with either depth, tunnels, or undermined areas that have moderate to large amounts of exudate. So what are our goals? We need to wick fluid out of any tunneled or undermined areas. We want to absorb excess exudate so that the wound surface is not macerated. There's no pooled exudate. 
We want to provide a bacterial barrier and a waterproof surface if needed. So if you look at this wound, it's sacrococcygeal. This patient was incontinent, so it would be really important for the outer dressing, the cover dressing, to be waterproof. And there's a number of ways I can do that. We'll come back to that. And if needed, I would select a dressing that also had antimicrobial effects. So what do I need? I need a wick for any tunneled or undermined areas. I need an absorptive filler dressing, and I need an absorptive cover dressing. I may need to have a waterproof, uh, bacterial-proof outer layer. So let's talk about each of those. Think about what you have available in the way of wicking dressings. <clears throat> now, if you have a wide tunnel, you can use almost anything because you don't have to worry about dressing fragments being trapped up in the tunnel. But what if you have a very narrow tunnel? Let's say your tunnel is less than 0.5 centimeters in diameter. Then you have to be very careful. You have to select a dressing that will not shed, that will not leave fragments behind. You want to make sure that what you put in is what you take out. So here are commonly used options for wicking dressings. I'm betting most of you have ribbon galls, either plain or antimicrobial ribbon galls. So you have like new galls or you have packing strips or you have AMD packing strips. You might have iodoform um, packing strips. Now let's just talk one minute about iodoform packing strips. So they are intended to be antimicrobial. They're impregnated with a combination of iodine products and formaldehyde um, byproducts. They are effectively antimicrobial, but can also be cytotoxic. So typically we use those types of <coughs> wicking dressings in abscess wounds post IND. For chronic wounds, remember that chronic wounds have kind of an uphill battle for healing. So we try to avoid anything that could be cytotoxic. So for a chronic wound, you're much more likely to use your plain packing strip like your new gauze, your AMD packing strip, which is impregnated with a non-cytotoxic antimicrobial. You could also use strips of your hydrofiber with or without silver. So some of you stock Aquacel, Aquacel AG, or a comparable product. That would be fine because that product is overstitched for safe use in narrow tunnels. If you happen to have mesalt, what is mesalt? Mesalt is ribbon gauze that's been impregnated with saline allowed to dry so that it's hypertonic. So when you tuck it into a wet tunnel, it actively wicks the fluid out of the tunnel. What do you have to have? One good option. So if you have new gauze, but that's the only one you have, okay. If you have AMD packing strips and that's all you have, that's okay. If you have mesalt, if you have Aquacel AG in the strip form, in the rope form, all of those are fine. So you need one good option for a wick, and it's fine if you use that same option every time you run into a narrow tunnel.
then you're going to need a dressing that lines the base of the wound and that provides absorption. Now, in the past, we used gauze a lot. We'll come back to that in just a minute. Let's talk about our modern dressings. So very commonly, you'll see alginates used in this situation. Sometimes they're called calcium alginates or they're called seaweed dressings. Very lightweight dressings that absorb 20 times their weight in exudate. They're available in both flat form and rope form, as you see at the bottom of your slide. They're available plain and antimicrobial, and they're designed for once daily or every other day dressing changes. So if you had a very deep wound, you could literally line it with the alginate, fluff dry gauze on top, and then do your cover dressing. What if you don't have that? Okay, do you have a hydrofiber or a hydrocellular dressing, something like Aquacell, Aquacell AG, or a competitor? That's fine. Alginates absorb drainage into the dressing to form a soft, wet dressing. Hydrofibers absorb exudate into the dressing to form a solid gel. Either one of them do a very good job handling exudate, maintaining a moist wound surface. So again, just like alginates, hydrofibers, hydrocellulars are available flat and rope, plain and antimicrobial, and are designed to provide enough exudate management for daily or every other day dressing changes. Now, obviously, you're going to use your judgment. So if you have a very wet wound, you're going to do daily dressing changes. Occasionally, you might have to do twice a day, but that would be very unusual. As there's a marked reduction in drainage, you might go every other day or even every third day. There's a third type of dressing. It's a polymer absorptive dressing. So it looks like sugar and you mix it with water. <clears throat> it turns into an applesauce consistency that still has tremendous absorptive capacity. It's actually based on the same technology as the super absorbent gels <clears throat> in diapers. So if you have that product available, also very appropriate for a deep wet wound. Now what about gauze dressings? Everybody has gauze and that's what a lot of clinicians are stuck on because they've used gauze for so long it's their comfort zone. Now what you need to know about gauze is available woven and non-woven. So your woven gauze is like your Curlix or your um, four by four gauzes where you see these very, it's got a very open weave pattern, large pores. Non-wovens have a very different appearance. So non-wovens are like your topper sponges. They're like um, cling or conform. They're like your packing strips. Now, the problem with woven gauze is much more likely to shed and it also provides very rapid transfer of wound exudate through the gauze to an outer layer. That means that the base layer in contact with the wound is very likely to become adherent to the wound surface. So if you have your choice between woven and non-woven, frequently non-woven is better in that it usually does a slightly better job of maintaining a moist wound surface. Gauze is available plain and antimicrobial, but there are major disadvantages to gauze. There's a reason that we tend to use 
alginates or hydrofibers or polymers if we have them. And that is that gauze is not a good absorber. It doesn't manage exudate well. It just allows exudate to pass through. So then the base layer of gauze tends to become adherent to the wound surface. So that tendency to stick and to cause trauma with removal is a second disadvantage of gauze. Woven gauze tends to shed fibers into the wound. I bet a lot of you have had to take, up, take pickups and pick gauze fibers out of the wound. You would like to avoid that. And a huge issue with gauze is the potential for overpacking. So many times if you watch people pack a wound, you would think there was some kind of prize if they could get the whole thing in there. But we never want to overpack wounds because what are we doing? Think about all the cells in the wound bed. They're all busily at work, making collagen, getting ready to you know, create new skin. If you overpack that wound, you're essentially flattening all the cells in the wound bed. They're plastered up against the wall. They can't do anything. So overpacking a wound keeps the wound open, reduces the rate of wound closure, increases discomfort for the patient. If there's one thing you could teach every nurse about gauze dressings, it's pack lightly and keep the gauze moist. The gauze layer in contact with the wound bed should always be moist. You should put it in moist and you should take it out moist. Now, if it's a clean wound, you're probably gonna moisten with saline. If it's a dirty wound, you may moisten the gauze with something like Dakin's or some other antiseptic solution. So can you use gauze safely? Yes, it's just harder. There's the guidelines, we just talked about them. Pack lightly and keep the contact layer moist at all times. Okay, so we've said we are going to wick our narrow tunnels. We're going to line or lightly fill the wound um, cavity, the crater. If it's very deep, we're probably going to line with an alginator or a hydrofiber and then put dry fluffed gauze in. And now we have to pick our secondary dressing. And our secondary dressing should provide backup absorption. And if necessary, it should be waterproof to repel urine and stool and to provide a bacterial barrier. So what does that mean in clinical terms? I can use gauze and tape. And if it's say on a trochanteric wound, gauze and tape would probably be a great choice. I'm sure you have some good options for skin friendly tape in your setting. You either have paper tape or you have one of the fabric tapes like Medipore or Primapore. So could you do gauze cover and tape if it's on the trochanter? Yes. What if it's on the sacrococcygeal area and my patient has incontinent episodes? I could do gauze and I could cover the gauze with a transparent adhesive dressing like Opsite or Tegaderm. Those are readily available in, in patient settings and they do a great job of waterproofing the wound. Or if it's on an extremity wound, I could fill it with gauze and I could cover it either with gauze or foam and then secure it with roll gauze. That would be appropriate because if I put an ABD on top, that gives me backup absorption and secure it with roll gauze. If I put a foam on top, it gives me backup absorption and I can secure it with roll gauze. 
Another great option if I have a trunk wound is to use an adhesive bordered foam. So that's what you see on the bottom there. I think all of you have this in your formulary. And one advantage of that type of dressing, you can use it as a primary dressing or you can use it as a secondary cover dressing. And what will it do? It will give you backup absorption, but that adhesive border and the waterproof cover means that it helps to keep urine and stool out and to provide that bacterial barrier. But what I hope you're seeing is that there are many ways to operationalize these basic principles. So you use what you have. What if you have a deep dry wound? So deep dry wounds are frequently your dehist wounds. It might be a dehisternal wound. It might be a dehist abdominal wound. And you know what happens, the common order is wet to dry gauze, and so people put gauze in, and then the gauze dries, and they go back to change the dressing, they have to pull out that dry gauze, it hurts, it causes tissue trauma, it causes bleeding. So thinking about wound care from a principle-based perspective, what do you need? Well, you still need to wick any fluid from tunneled or undermined areas. Here our focus is maintaining a moist wound surface. We don't have to worry so much about managing exudate. There's not very much of it. We might need a bacterial barrier. We might need antimicrobial effects. But I know that my filler dressing has to be hydrating. I know that my cover dressing should help to retain moisture. So what are my options? Again, if I have a tunneled or undermined area, I'm going to need a wick for that tunneled or undermined area. I can use the same things we talked about for deep wet wounds. I can use ribbon gauze. I can use hydrofiber strips, whatever I've got. My filler dressing now needs to be hydrating. So I could either put down a layer of wound gel and then put fluffed damp gauze on top or I could just take my fluffed gauze, soak it in the gel, and then lightly pack it into the wound. Both approaches are effective. Now, when I pick my cover dressing, I want to pick a cover dressing that helps to maintain a moist wound surface. So I could put down my gel, cover it with damp fluffed gauze, maybe put one layer of dry gauze, and then a transparent adhesive dressing, Opsider or Tegaderm. That would be a good choice because it would hold the dressing in place. It would trap moisture within the wound bed so that it retards evaporative loss and drying. And it also allows you to monitor the wound and the gauze to see what's happening. What else could I do? I could use an adhesive bordered foam dressing. It does much the same thing because that outer layer tends to retain moisture within the wound bed. It's waterproof, it has limited porosity, so it traps moisture and helps keep the wound surface moist. So a lot of times it comes down to what do you have available in your formulary? What about shallow wet wounds? So these are your venous ulcers, it's your granulating pressure injury, it's your neuropathic ulcers, it's large skin tears, it's large abraded areas like patients with road rash. So what do you wanna do here? You don't have to worry about tunnels, there are none. 
but you do have a lot of drainage here. You're trying to absorb excess exudate and avoid pooling at the surface. You do want to keep the surface itself fairly moist. You want to provide a bacterial barrier if this wound is in an area that has close proximity to urinary stool, and you may need antimicrobial effects. Now, again, many options. You could do a flat absorptive dressing and an absorptive cover, or you could just do an absorptive cover as a standalone. And when we look at specifics, you'll see more than one approach. So let's say this is a really wet wound and you're trying to change the dressing change frequency to every other day or every three days. Well, then I could put down a flat alginate, the seaweed dressing, or a flat hydrofiber like Aquacel. I could cover it with adhesive foam. So now I've got layers of absorptive dressing. Or I could put down a layer of alginate, the seaweed dressing, or a layer of hydrofiber like Aquacel. I could cover it with a porous foam or with an ABD, and I could secure it with roll gauze if it was on an extremity. Or I could do a non-adherent contact layer. Contact layer dressings are like your petrolatum gauze, your Xeriform, your Adaptic, or second generation contact layer dressings are silicone based like Mepitel, Mepitel 1, Versatel, or Adaptive Touch. So could I put down a contact layer and then dry gauze and then secure it with roll gauze? Yes, if it's on the extremity. Or could I just take an adhesive foam dressing and put that down because the foam absorbs and the adhesive secures it? Any one of those are appropriate. And there's probably other combinations. I've listed the most common. Specific foam dressings, I just wanted to go over a couple of things because foam dressings are a very versatile type of dressing. They can be used as a primary dressing. They can be used as a secondary dressing. They're available plain. They're available antimicrobial. And the third thing I want you to think about is look at the two things you have here. So the one on top, the beige one, is an island foam dressing and it has a waterproof adhesive cover and border. But if you look at the gray foam, that is a minimally adhesive porous foam. There is no adhesive border. It is not waterproof. So there are situations in which your waterproof adhesive bordered foam is the best choice. And there are situations in which your porous non-bordered foam is the best choice. And those are lined out on your slide. So when is the dressing on top a really good choice? It's a great option if you have a trunk wound because you need it to stay in place and you don't want to have to add tape is particularly beneficial if the patient's incontinent and you need that bacterial barrier. But here's the thing you have to think about. In the bordered adhesive foam, absorptive capacity is limited to that island foam dressing. 
And when its absorptive capacity is exceeded, where's the rest of the drainage going to go? It can't penetrate that waterproof cover, so it's either going to be trapped in the wound or it's going to leak out onto the peri-wound skin and cause a lot of maceration. In that case, a porous foam is better. So that's what you see, the gray one, is an example of a porous foam. So what happens with the porous foam is it absorbs the initial amount of exudate, but when its absorptive capacity is exceeded, any additional exudate passes through that porous foam for absorption by an outer dressing, okay? So that's a much better option for a wound with very high volume exudate, especially if it's going to be in a wound with less frequent dressing changes. For example, a venous ulcer in a patient getting compression therapy. Compression therapy wraps are changed once or twice a week. We'll be talking about that in a later class. So you would need a dressing that could manage exudate for a longer period of time, at least three to four days. So you can see that the bottom one would be much better in that situation because any excess exudate would just be passed through and could be managed by outer dressing layers or by the compression wrap itself. Let's talk a little bit about contact layer dressings. That's another big category of dressings and there's actually first generation and second generation contact layer dressings. So all of you have experience with some of these contact layer dressings. I'm betting most of you have adaptic, probably most of you have Vaseline gauze, probably a large percentage also have Xeroform gauze. Those were the first three contact layer dressings to become available. I call them first generation contact layer dressings. So what were they designed to do? Basically, they were designed to protect the wound bed from trauma, to help keep the wound bed moist, and to allow exudate to pass through that contact layer for absorption by an outer dressing. So the way we use them, we place the contact layer over the wound, we cover it with dry gauze, and typically we secure it with roll gauze. So it's usually for an extremity wound. One good thing about contact layer dressings, you can use them for wet wounds or dry wounds as long as they're superficial and on the extremity. So let's talk about the difference between first generation and second generation. So petrolatum based adaptic Vaseline Xeroform. These are all initially non-adherent. If you put them down, it's easy to pick them up and move them. There's no trauma when you do that. But what happens over time is they become progressively adherent and it can become more and more difficult to remove them from the wound. So typically these dressings need to be changed daily or every other day to prevent drying. Um, a lot of clinicians prefer the Xeroform, that's what you see here, because they think it's antimicrobial. In actuality, Xeroform is impregnated with a weak bismuth salt concentration. We don't have any good data that says there are significant antimicrobial effects. So basically it's like yellow Vaseline gauze, but with a major placebo effect because people think it's medicated and it smells medicated. Second generation contact layer dressings. 
manufacturers looked at first generation, what were the problems that we encountered with first generation? They dry out, they become adherent to the wound bed, they cause trauma with removal, and they don't do a good job of staying in place. So they came up with silicone-based contact layer dressings, Mapitel, Mapitel 1, Adaptic Touch, Versatel. Now these dressings look very much like Adaptive, but with slightly larger pore sizes, they adhere very well to the wound and the surrounding tissue, so they don't move out of place. Because they're silicone-based, they do not dry out. So you can leave them in place for up to seven days. You can literally flush the wound through the dressing. You can apply medications through the dressing. You can cover them with gauze and secure them with wrap gauze change the outer layers as needed for strike through and change the base layer once or twice a week. So you can see that they're more wound friendly and also more nurse friendly because they require less frequent dressing changes and they don't cause trauma. And then the last category of wounds is shallow and dry. So these are usually very superficial wounds or wounds that are almost through healing. And we have very simple goals here. We're just trying to keep the wound itself, the wound surface itself, barely moist. We're trying to protect the wound from trauma. So typically we're looking for a dressing that is moisture retentive and that provides, is just a cover dressing. We don't need a filler. So here are some of the things that are available to you. You may or may not have solid gel dressings available to you because there's a relatively small percentage of wounds that fall into the shallow dry category. If you do, if you look at the gel dressing on top, that is a water-based gel. Now, if you put a water-based gel over the wound and in contact with the surrounding skin, you can macerate the surrounding skin. So you need to size it to pretty much fit the wound and you need to protect the peri-wound skin from moisture with one of your moisture barrier or liquid skin barrier products. Water-based gels give you essentially no absorption, but they do a very good job of maintaining a moist wound surface when the wound is dry. Glycerin-based gels provide some degree of exudate management. They're much less prone to drying, so they typically can leave can be left in place for three to four days. Water-based usually has to be changed every one to two days because they will evaporate over time. So you may not be using gel dressings a lot, but I'm betting all of you have access to hydrocolloids, and that's the second dressing down. That's the yellow hydrocolloid, so that's your duoderm, that's your Comfeal. These are wafer dressings. They provide limited absorption. There are some carboxymethylcellulose granules in the dressing and they can absorb, but it doesn't give you a lot of absorption, just limited. They do a very good job of maintaining a moist surface. So sometimes when you're trying to rehydrate a wound surface, it's a very good choice. They also do a good job of protecting against friction and contamination. They only have to be changed every three to five days, so frequently a good choice for management of a wound that's almost healed. 
There's a hydrophilic paste on the market that's a very good choice for perianal and perineal wounds because it will adhere to those moist wound surfaces and you don't have to try to get a seal. We'll talk more about that when you come on site for bridge week. You have your um, transparent adhesive dressings. Those are appropriate. Your tegaderms, your opsites, if there's no drainage at all or just a tiny little bit. Remember, transparent adhesives have no absorptive capacity, so they're intended pretty much for protection. And what about your contact layers? Could you use your silicone contact layers or your petrolatum-based contact layers for a surface dry wound? Yes. And in this case, your silicone contact layers would be a much better choice because your petrolatum-based contact layers are going to dry out pretty quickly if your wound has essentially no exudate. So at right now, where you're to, I want you to focus not on specific dressings, but on principles of dressing selection and on dressing categories. I want you to remember what it is that dressings do to provide passive support for healing. They manage exudate and they maintain a moist surface. So in doing so, they create a positive working environment for fibroblasts and for keratinocytes. Some of them provide a barrier against contaminants. So if you need that, you can select a dressing with a waterproof outer layer. And many provide antimicrobial effects. So a lot of your dressings are available plain and antimicrobial. When you're selecting a dressing, you make your selection based on depth and contours, so are there narrow tunnels? Are there undermined areas? How deep is your wound? And how wet is your wound? What's the volume of exudate? If you have depth, undermined areas, tunnels, you need a filler dressing and a cover dressing. If it's surface, no tunnels, no undermined areas, you need a surface or cover dressing only. If it's wet, you need an absorber. If it's dry, you need a hydrator. If it's just right, you need a dressing that maintains the status quo. And remember that decision-making pathway that we provided at the beginning of this class? We'll use that when you come for Bridge Week and we'll walk through it over and over again so you can see how you can use that for clinical decision-making and feel really good and knowing that you didn't miss anything. Okay, thank you.